Forty here, and so if you watch the show regularly, you realise that Forty is a bloke who has devoted his life to public service, right? Just uh, always there to serve the needs of other people. But I'm just reflecting, like, when was I there for my needs? Like, when have I looked after my wants? Like, I'm a man. I have needs, and I just selflessly devote myself to public service day in, day out, just keeping my eye on the prize, just always being of service to people. But when do I ever get to take the time to explore what I want? I have feelings. I am a man. I have weakness. I want to love and to be loved. And yet, in my ceaseless pursuit of public service, I'm afraid that I just haven't gotten to know me. Like, I've been undressed before kings, but I've never been to me. What about my needs? What about my feelings? What about my exploration? What about my my spirituality? What about my journey? I'm just this, this selfless public servant, and I've never been to me. We need to explore this more deeply. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, last night we told you the sad and bewildering story of Dr. Oz, a man with absolutely everything going for him, talent, decency, charm, money, name recognition, all the right endorsements, who is nevertheless losing by a big margin as a Republican in what should be a Republican wave election to a radical and incompetent Democratic lieutenant governor who's presided over the decline of the state, and who, by the way, also has had a stroke and can no longer speak in complete sentences. That's happening right now. Dr. Oz is getting crushed by a stroke victim who was already crazy. It's bizarre. The question is, why is this happening? We spent some time on the phone the other day calling around to various smart political people to find out why it's happening. We heard a lot of theories, almost all of which boiled down to Dr. Oz is a bad candidate. Mitch McConnell, who's in charge of electing more Republicans to the Senate, gave virtually the same explanation yesterday at a Kentucky Chamber of Commerce lunch. Quote, Candidate quality has a lot to do with outcome. The Senate gave said, In other words, it's not my fault. They sent me bad candidates. Okay. But before we accept that, before we accept that a Republican just can't win at a time when Democrats have completely discredited themselves, it's worth pausing and asking exactly what this means. What is a bad candidate? Well, there are no bad candidates. Just like there are no bad dogs. There's bad owners. There are no bad candidates. There are just candidates who are running on the wrong things. Candidates who are talking about issues that people don't deeply care about. A good candidate is the opposite of that. A good candidate is a candidate who promises to fix the problems that voters worry about most. Candidates like that tend to win elections because the message is bigger than the man. A candidate with a powerful message can overcome virtually any obstacle, from multiple bankruptcies to universal media hostility to a dull orange skin tone. If voters believe you will make their lives better, they will vote for you, period. It's not complicated. Unfortunately, donors and party leaders often do complicate it. They want candidates to talk about issues that they care about, which are often very different from the issues that the public cares about. Remember, Republicans used to yell at you about entrepreneurship. That's the most important thing. Entrepreneurship. Okay. Sounds kind of amusing now, but basically that is still happening. Consider Pennsylvania, the state where Dr. Oz is now losing. What do voters in Pennsylvania care about most? We haven't seen the most recent polls, but we would guess law and order is at the very top of that list. Why do we think that? Well, here's video from a story that a local television station, Fox 29, is doing tonight about murder in Philadelphia, the state's largest city. You're seeing the pictures on your screen right now. 
Reporter Chris O'Connell went to a nearby cemetery and asked how things were going. Workers there told him, quote, we can't dig graves fast enough. That's how many young people are being murdered in Philadelphia right now. We can't dig graves fast enough. When was the last time you heard that? You didn't hear it during COVID, the global pandemic that politicians told you was the worst thing ever to happen to America. But COVID wasn't the worst thing ever to happen to America. And over time, people figured that out. They learned they had been lied to. And that's one of the reasons so many Americans now hate politicians. They're tired of the lying. And it's the very same reason that voters will tend to reward any candidate who tells the truth about what is actually happening and what actually matters. Here's one thing that actually is happening and actually matters, something that everybody sees, but that candidates virtually never mention, and that is stealing. Suddenly, there's a huge amount of stealing in the United States. It's everywhere. That's a problem because stealing is a crime, a moral crime. In fact, it's the first crime that most of us learn not to commit as children. Don't steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. It's immoral, and it certainly is immoral. Yet somehow in the last few years, our leaders, Democrats mostly, but honestly, to some extent, both parties, our leaders have decided that stealing isn't really such a big deal. It's not really a crime. It's certainly not something we should be worried about. In a country this rich, with this much income inequality, how can you really tell people not to take from those who are better off than they are? That's their attitude. It's a decadent attitude, but that's what they really believe, even if they don't always say it out loud. So without any sort of public referendum, the kind you would have in a democracy, cities around the country have effectively decriminalized stealing. So what's been the effect of this? Well, more stealing. And stealing quickly metastasizes into looting and then social collapse. That's happening right now, everywhere. Here's footage from a grocery store in Los Angeles. That footage is followed by footage of a crowd of criminals storming a 7-Eleven. Why? That's L.A. Could be anywhere. We saw that on the Internet this morning and we were shocked by it, transfixed by it. Really, it's repulsive. There is no excuse for that. No one in that crowd needed what they stole. They didn't need Newports to survive. No one starves us in this country anyway. But they stole anyway. Why? Not because of us, but because of them. Because they're greedy and piggish. Their parents never told them not to. And most of all, because they could. Joe Biden's Justice Department will never say a word about what they did. Criticizing theft is an offense against equity. But that's happening. Why isn't every Republican candidate in the nation running ads with that footage in it? No one is, as far as we know. Most just ignoring the chaos. But that doesn't mean it isn't real. It is real. And again, because it's not addressed, it's spreading. Starbucks just closed 16 stores nationwide because of increasing theft. It's going unpunished. Target just reduced its operating hours in six San Francisco stores. They used to close at 10 so people could buy stuff after work. Now they're going to close at five. Why? Because of crime, stealing. Walgreens shut down 17 stores altogether. Stores are now losing an average of $45 million a day because of theft. What does that add up to? The disintegration of society. That's not an overstatement. 
You see it every robbery up dramatically in New York. It's so bad in New York that grocery stores are locking spam and ham and anti-theft cases. Robberies up 12% in San Francisco, 20% in L.A. Motor vehicle thefts are also up by similar numbers. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, arrests for theft and motor vehicle theft have actually been going down. Oh, so the incidence of crime rises, but the punishment of crime falls. Prosecutors in California have stopped enforcing the law. But it's not just California. It's at the federal level as well. Joe Biden's DOJ has done nothing to stop the crime wave, and so it is accelerating everywhere. Illinois and Washington State, for example. Some high-end stores along the Gold Coast have hired security guards to usher in customers one at a time because of videos like this, where a handful of criminals come in at a time. In this case, the theft ring made off with over $100,000 worth of Louis Vuitton items. This may be the most brazen shoplift you'll ever see. After singling out a $600 70-inch TV, police say John Lomack, the man in blue, puts the TV on a shopping cart and starts to wheel it through Seattle's downtown Target. Court documents say he's stolen from this Target 21 times before. Suspects running through the streets of San Francisco, arms full of loot. A trio of thieves violently smashing and then grabbing $20,000 worth of watches. Snatch and run. Within seconds, thieves swipe $93,000 worth of merchandise from Louis Vuitton in Bellevue. Customer stepped outside and then returns with a pistol jabbing at the employee. Demanding all the bills from the register. The gunman takes the cash and runs out. At least think he's done it before. Makes your heartbeat faster watching that. What country is this? And why is no one stopping them? You've seen videos like this. They're all over the internet. When there's a security guard, the security guard just stands there haplessly doing nothing. Some of them are cowards, probably. Some of them aren't. But none of them know None of them believe they're going to be backed up by the government, local, state, or federal, if they intervene and try and stop someone from stealing. So people steal with impunity. Why wouldn't they? Their parents don't tell them not to. And what happens then? If you allow people to loot stores, it will not be long before they are sticking guns in your face and pulling the trigger. Disorder leads to violence every single time. We've seen this movie repeatedly. And once violence begins and the state does nothing to stop it, in fact, in some cases, encourage it, what happens then? People become desperate and left with no other choice. They take the law into their own hands. That is already happening. We have law enforcement and courts to prevent this so people won't have to do this. But they're not functioning. So people are doing it. Watch this Las Vegas smoke shop owner defend himself with a knife when a robber dressed in all black and a mask suddenly vaults the counter. Why are you guys wearing masks like that? Say what? Can you guys just leave? Nah. Jacob. Can I just get the... Alright, take the money in it. Can I keep the coins? I need the coins. Bro, okay. We cut out the rest of it. We stabbed that man until he fell down and didn't resist. The store owner is called Johnny Nguyen. He told reporters, no embarrassment. I don't think he planned on getting stabbed that day, but if you try robbing a store, you are taking a risk. That's a message people who rob stores have forgotten, but they're going to be reminded of it very soon as more store owners find they have no choice but to defend their lives and property with force.
with knives or guns. That's going to happen. Do we want that? In some cases, those people will be arrested. In other cases, they'll become local celebrities. But in all cases, we're putting the onus of law enforcement on the individual when that is the core duty of the state. But the state's given up. And again, in a lot of cases, in the case of the Biden administration, they're encouraging it. So again, more store owners are doing exactly what that man did, defending themselves and their livelihoods. That's even happening in California, where despite the strictest gun control in the country, a man with a rifle tried to shoot and kill a store owner in July. And here's what happened next. After taking on four armed robbers, 80-year-old Craig Cope is back at work at Norco Market and Liquor. Investigators say four men in a stolen vehicle with stolen weapons backed into the parking lot. Pulled over to here. Inside, Craig was alone. Watching the security cameras, Craig grabbed his shotgun, knowing he would have to defend himself. But I was trying to make sure I hit what I was pointing at. One of the men was shot in the arm. You can hear him screaming in the video. So the Biden administration is constantly lecturing you about civil rights. Crime is the most basic violation of civil rights. And they're doing nothing. If they cared, instead of sending tens of billions of dollars to corrupt oligarchs in Ukraine, more money for Zelensky, maybe they could send the money to immigrant convenience store owners for security. But they're not. They could investigate the prosecutors who are refusing to enforce the law in violation of our Constitution and their oaths of office. That would be a start. But they're not doing that either. The DOJ isn't even acknowledging this is happening. Instead, they're focusing all of their energy on phantom white supremacy threats, people who complain about the sexual mutilation of children. They're the ones feeling the heat from the DOJ. And where's the other side? Once again, if every Republican office seeker, every Republican candidate in the United States focused on law and order and equality under the law, there would be a red wave. Larry Elder joins us now. He is a former candidate for California governor, the one we would have voted for. He's the host of Larry Elder's show on the Epic Times. Happy to see him. Larry, thanks so much for coming on. So why don't, I mean, you live in a state and you tried to fix it yourself, but you live in a state where stores can't stay open because they're being looted. I don't ever hear office holders even mention this. Well, Tucker, um, excellent monologue as usual. Three broad themes. The first is let's talk about the police. The police in city after city, whether it's L.A., whether it's Chicago, whether it's New York, they are demoralized by this lie that they are engaging in systemic racism against minorities, that they're using deadly force against minorities just because they're black. And they're no longer engaging in proactive policing. They're not engaging in some form of stop, question and frisk, which happened under the Giuliani regime in New York that caused a deep, deep decline uh, in crime. Even Mayor Rahm Emanuel, the Democrat mayor of Chicago, even said uh, when he was mayor that the Chicago police had, quote, gone fetal, close quote, meaning they weren't engaging in proactive policing. The second big theme, of course, is soft on crime policies, soft on crime governors like the one in California, soft on crime DAs. Gavin Newsom bragged during COVID that he released 8,000 convicted felons. Some of them were violent offenders, uh, uh, Tucker, uh, and the odds are that at least half of them are going to reoffend. You have, you have these soft on crime policies like Proposition 47 that allows you to steal 950 bucks, not just a day, but per store. And if you get caught, 
They write you a ticket as a misdemeanor, and you don't go to jail because you got cashless bail. Proposition 57 that allows a bunch of categories of crime to be called nonviolent, and they include assault on a police officer. I kid you not. That's nonviolent. Serial arson, nonviolent. Rape of an intoxicated victim, nonviolent. And as a result, you're finding a greater chance that the bad guy doesn't get caught. And when the bad guy knows he's not going to get caught, crime goes up. If he knows he's not going to get convicted, crime goes up. If he knows he's not going to get incarcerated, crime goes up. They may be crooks, but they're not stupid. And finally, the one that few people like to talk about, and you mentioned it in the monologue, is the breakdown of the family. You said their parents, plural, are not telling them not to steal. Uh, that assumes that there are two parents. Often it is the parent or the grandparent. 40% of all kids in America today enter the world, uh, Tucker, without a father married to the mother. 70% of black kids, half of all Hispanic kids, 25% of white kids. And if you enter the world without a father married to the mother, you're many times more likely to drop out of school, commit crime, uh, and end up going to jail. A young black man is eight to ten times more likely to be murdered than a young white man. In fact, murder is the number one preventable cause of death for young black men, whereas accidents like car accidents and drownings are the number one cause of preventable death for young white men. And a lot of this crime is taking place in the inner city, uh, in the ghettos, and in the barrios, where the father is not there. I, I, I don't know why every Republican in the country wouldn't be running on this. I mean, it's, it's just so obvious if this continues, we'll be living in a completely different place that we don't want to live in. So why don't they just say that out loud? Well, you know, I ran for governor of California, as you pointed out. Uh, it's one thing to talk about these issues because it was a central tenet of my campaign. But all the media wanted to talk about is whether or not Larry Elder thought 2020 was stolen. I said, I'm here to talk about crime. I'm here to talk about uh, bad yeah. schools, underperforming schools. Yeah, but do you think 2020 was stolen? So I, I cannot control the filter through which my message goes. They still, ABC, NBC, CNN, yeah. LA Times, where I was called the black face of white supremacy. They didn't care that I wanted to talk about crime. They wanted to talk about the fact that I was Republican, that I voted for Trump, and that had Gavin Newsom been recalled, it would have been a Republican takeover. That's all they cared about. And Republicans are outnumbered in California three to one, and California independents and Democrats are conditioned to loathe Republicans. And I, and I yeah. don't know what it's going to take. It's going to take like a drug addict, you've got to hit rock bottom. And more and more of this crime is taking place in the suburbs like Beverly Hills, uh, like right. Hancock Park. And until and unless it happens, we're going to still have the same old policies pushed by the same old people. Yeah. Make them defend the looting of 7-Eleven at every right. turn. Can you, you did this. Right. Can you defend this? And of course they can. Larry Elder, great to right. see you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, speaking of chaos, law enforcement has been suspended at our southern border, which is wide open. As a result, last month alone, U.S. officials reported nearly 200,000 illegal migrants at the border. Those are just the ones they encountered. By comparison, at the end of 2020, migrant encounters totaled just 72,000 per month. Now, some of these people are using military-style camouflage to enter the country, which is bizarre. Fox's Matt Finn has that story for us tonight. Hey, Matt. Hey, Tucker, we've seen illegal migrants use all types of methods to disguise or camouflage themselves. Now new pictures appear to show suspected illegal migrants wearing ghillie suits to blend into the desert. 
Border Patrol agents in the El Paso sector arrested the three migrants in southern New Mexico. Gilly is a type of camouflage material used to blend into various natural environments. Military personnel, police, and hunters use them. Fox News has reached out to the U.S. Customs and Border Protection for more information on those pictures. And these arrests come as this week the federal government announced there were 199,000 migrant encounters at the border in July. For comparison, at the end of 2020, migrant encounters were around 72,000 per month, now skyrocketing to nearly 200,000 last month, bringing the total number of encounters to a record 1.94 million this fiscal year. But sources tell Fox News that number is now over 2 million. The Biden administration claims the number of encounters is inflated under Title 42 expulsions, where migrants quickly cross back into the U.S. after being expelled under that COVID-19 order. And as we have been reporting, states like Texas and Arizona are now moving migrants to other states uh, in cities like Washington, D.C. and New York as a form of protest to the federal government. Tucker. Matt Finn, thanks so much for that. Thank you. That Gilly suit story is bizarre. The guy on the right looks European. What is this exactly? They can just walk in. Why are they wearing camouflage? Hopefully we'll find out more. Well, the Attorney General of the United States suggests it's a hate crime if you're against the sexual mutilation of children. But a lot of people are so offended by this atrocity that they're speaking up anyway, and they're being banned from social media. Even the YMCA. You can't go to the YMCA. But they're not backing down. We'll talk to one of them straight ahead. Hey, g'day, May 40 here. So, no, I don't spend a lot of time in Compton. I'm more of a Beverly Hills kind of guy. Uh, interesting article in Politico, the real fallout from the Mar-a-Lago search. So law enforcement now has to focus on how to prevent the raid from leading to wide-scale civil breakdown. Do you remember Ruby Ridge? Is that 1992, 90, I, I believe? And <clears throat> the FBI overreached. They, they tried to entrap this guy. They successfully entrapped him into selling a, a sawed-off shotgun. And they mounted a raid on his cabin, ended up killing the guy's wife, and a law enforcement officer was killed as well. And then law enforcement massively overreached in the Waco raid. And what, about 80 people died, including about 50 kids because of Janet Reno and uh, Bill Clinton and federal law enforcement overreach. And that, that spurred Timothy McVeigh to bomb Oklahoma City. So Timothy McVeigh's bombing of Oklahoma City didn't happen in a vacuum. He didn't just get up in the morning and decide, oh, I'm going to go bomb Oklahoma City. So we have no idea of the whirlwind that is that we're going to reap due to this FBI raid on Donald Trump's Florida residents. Now, I, am, I still retain 50% open mind that this FBI raid was necessary. I'm open to that case being made. It just... I'm just not impressed by all the efforts to make that case so far. So right now, Democrats love this raid on Donald Trump. It, it's a gratification long delayed. And uh, so they're happy. The media is happy. But what's coming down the pike? I mean, how many people are going to die as a result of backlash to an overreaching FBI? I mean, how many people? People are, are going to be so outraged by this FBI raid on Trump and other forms of FBI overreach to rebel decisively against federal authority. And, and could this shift from episodic to systemic? May we get regular armed resistance to federal law enforcement now on the order of Ruby Ridge, Ridge and Waco and Oklahoma City. 
So this is by a couple of uh, distinguished fellows, Steve Simon, a fellow at the MIT Center for International Studies, Jonathan Stevenson at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And so one bloke here was Senior Director for Counterterrorism at the National Security Council, and the other lived in Northern Ireland. So yesterday was comparatively a steady state. Today we've got a tinderbox. Now, federal agents have moved against far-right groups in the past. In 1992, there was that standoff at Ruby Ridge, and that, that resulted in the death of a U.S. Marshal, the death of the wife of the suspect, and the death of his son. And I believe a dog was killed as well. And then you had the federal government's besiegement and invasion of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. 86 people died there. Right? And then Timothy McVeigh confirmed those two incidents were the key catalysts of his devastating 1995 bombing of a federal building in Oklahoma City, which killed 168. So this FBI, what looks like FBI overreach, may well legitimate increasing domestic political violence coming from the right. So far, we're used to, since the 1960s, almost all political violence comes from the left. Maybe now this will lead to the right. However, the FBI has revealed items found in Trump's safe. So maybe this will kind of... Well, good morning, everyone. As so you know, it has been a banner week for us here at the conference. FBI. We've arrested hundreds of concerned parents at school board meetings. We have busted several terror plots that were being carried out by, um, well, by us. And uh, most importantly, we raided the Mar-a-Lago home of Donald Trump. So, of course, the purpose of this press conference will be to uh, reveal the items from Trump's safe that we have recovered. And Agent Scolder here will be demonstrating, uh, uh, showing to us the first of the items. Yes, thank you, Agent Mully. First up, we have thousands, and I mean thousands, of McDonald's receipts. The guy ate a lot of McDonald's, and it appears he tried to flush this one down the toilet. Despicable. Well, we also have here an item of note, a giant bottle of tanning solution. Unclear what it was used for. Mr. Trump may have been using this in some kind of plan to blow up the Statue of Liberty or perhaps the moon. This appears to be the kickstand for Joe Biden's bike, an act of treason and an attempt on our dear leader's life. Despicable. Here we have a birth certificate for someone named uh, Barack Hussein Obama. And unclear why he has this. This person appears to have been born in Kenya. Very strange stuff. Never heard of him. This one was a real bombshell. Here's a sealed document marked top secret. Let's see what it says. <clears throat> it says, you FBI guys are low IQ. Sad, not good. Seems that uh, Mr. Trump is a real wise guy. Very funny. Wise guy on our hands here. Well, he definitely violated the Presidential Records Act, though, by removing these small shampoo bottles from the White House bathroom. Why does he even need those? He has them in unlimited supply. Dude owns a hotel. And he still takes these. Despicable. Despicable. Not only that, but he seems to have never returned this casserole dish to Mike Pence. 
Mother is not going to like that. No. Or the TV remote to the Lincoln bedroom. Despicable. 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 What a scumbag. Real sick stuff going Okay, we got uh, an article here on Babylon B10. Telltale signs you're about to get raided by the FBI. There's a windowless van labeled fiberboard installers parked outside your house all week with a satellite dish on the roof. The bush in your front yard is a foot closer to your home every time you look at it. You are dumb enough to engage in drug and sex trafficking without being Joe Biden's son. Your DoorDash delivery guy is showered and clean-shaven, and your wife keeps shooing pesky FBI agents rummaging through her closet. Or you are the president, you took nuclear codes home with you again. Maybe you attended a school board meeting in the last 12 weeks. You probably are a monster. Okay, so back to this uh, serious article in Politico. So in the 1990s, you had the militia movement. It was merely percolating. It was committed to resisting government, but not interested in taking the offensive or prepared to do so. It was only those two major conspicuous law enforcement debacles that inspired the militia movement, in particular Timothy McVeigh, to lethal terrorism. So now the right and left are probably irreconcilable. And we may be in a much more dangerous situation. Steve Bannon's called the FBI a Gestapo. Many Republicans are calling for defunding the FBI. Far-right pundits have proclaimed this means war. They have characterized the search as a declaration of war. So the two authors of this piece believe that the FBI's raid was justified. But they are also... I'm skeptical of that, but I think they're touching on something important, that we, we are seeing threats against federal law enforcement spiking. We we are seeing the, the doxing of FBI agents publicizing their personal information so they can be harassed. And as an aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, well, January 6th riots, all right, we've got that seen as increasingly legitimate. So... We've got an incendiary effect of the Mar-a-Lago search, and, and we just have no idea where this is going to lead. All right? It's going to make life much more difficult for federal law enforcement. We're likely to head into a time of spiraling confrontation between the state and its adversaries. And uh, much of federal law enforcement, local law enforcement, is fractured. Right? Much of the FBI did not agree with the Mar-a-Lago raid. Much of federal law enforcement, local law enforcement, don't agree with this kind of FBI overreach. So we should be living in exciting times ahead. But uh, let's try to focus on some happier news here. The wages of America's middle class, now it is progressive to support the sexual mutilization, mutilation and sexualization of children. That's progressive. As a result, all over the country, kids are being forced to attend drag shows like this. Does that offend you? Think that's inappropriate for children? Don't say it, because thought crimes are now the real crimes. Merrick Garland's DOJ is informing you it's a hate crime. 
to say anything about what you just saw. But some people are not intimidated. A coalition called Gays Against Groomers has formed and has one mission, stop the sexualization and the abuse of young children. Now, for saying that out loud, big tech companies have tried to silence them. They've been banned by Twitter as well as Linktree and other social networking sites. So after being criticized, Twitter has just reinstated their account. Jamie Michelle is the founder of Gays Against Groomers. She joins us tonight. Jamie, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for what you're doing. On what grounds are you being banned? What was your crime exactly? Uh, well, thank you for having me, Tucker. Um, we were banned for hateful conduct, which uh, they consider calling out child predators and abusers and people that want to sexualize them. Um, they, I, I guess, are a protected class of people now on big tech. So for speaking out against them and trying to protect children, we were taken down. We've been taken down three times in three months now. Um, we're brand new. Our coalition just started in June. And, yeah, they, they can't seem to cut us a break here. So people are intentionally sexualizing children, which I thought was a crime. It's certainly a moral crime. But because you don't like it, you're the dangerous one. Exactly. Um, in any moral society, it would be criminalized, what we see happening, and it should be criminalized. Uh, but that doesn't seem to matter. These people are going full steam ahead, ahead with their agenda, and they're using our community, the LGBT community, to use, uh, they're using us as shields, essentially, right. to uh, continue to push this uh, unabated. And um, so I decided that that's enough. We're not going to let this continue anymore because the vast majority of our community stands so strongly against this. And we're just as, as disgusted by it as everyone else. Uh, and I think that our voices are going to be really effective in actually putting an end to it. I hope you're right. What, I'm just wondering what percentage of the American population of any party or sexual. OK, I've got a story that is so gay that you're, you're probably going to get uh, monkeypox. So I need to need to warn you about this. And you'll be shocked, shocked where I found this story. All right. I found this story in the New York Times. All right. Odessa in Ukraine is defiant. It's also Putin's ultimate target, guys. This most storied of ports remains the Russian leader's obsession. He just wakes up in the middle of the night obsessed over Odessa. Not only because it holds the key to the Black Sea. Why, why is Putin obsessed with Odessa? Is he, is he obsessed because it has, has diversity? But because its openness and diversity embody all he wants to destroy. Did you realize that Vladimir Putin is on a jihad against openness and diversity? It's just like Osama bin Laden. He, he supposedly attacked us on 9-11 because he resented our freedoms. I mean, how gay is this, right? This is the New York Times trying to argue that, that uh, Vladimir Putin is obsessed with Odessa because its openness and diversity embody all he wants to destroy. Russia is open to all sorts of things that Americans aren't open to, and it's close to other things that Americans are open to. Like, being open and diverse isn't always a good thing. Diversity means that we don't have very much in common. I, I don't see why that's a good thing. There are all sorts of things that you should not be open to. President Vladimir Putin knows that Ukraine's fate, its access to the sea, and its great exports hinge on Odessa. Now, that is true. Without it, the country shrivels to a landlocked rump state. That is true. But this idea 
that uh, Odessa's diversity is what really bugs Putin. I mean, how gay is that? How stupid is that? All right. Odessa, scarred metropolis, steeped in Jewish history. Well, guys, if this, this city is steeped in Jewish history, then Vladimir Putin should you know, be very, very nice to it because Jews are sacred in a way that non-Jews aren't because Jews have that extra soul. But unfortunately, Putin has singled out Odessa with particular venom. He's made clear his intention to capture criminals there and bring them to, to justice. He's, he's on the march against diversity. Okay, here's the writer, right? Uh, what, what was this guy's name? Distinguished New York Times columnist, Roger Cohen. Great job here, Roger Cohen, making Jews look good. Thank you so much. All right. For three summer weeks, I listened to children's voices. Uh, just like uh, Drag Queen Story Hour, right? They're listening to children's voices as well. I, I contemplated the statue of a Cossack leader. I lived with the blaring of sirens, warning of imminent attack. I heard explosions. And he pondered. He pondered the fate that a fratricidal, meaning war between brothers, hordes for this city with a history of feast and famine. Six months into the war, Odessa resists, not untouched, but unbowed. I mean, oh, I feel like I'm getting monkeypox just reading this out loud. I, I feel the postules like growing on my face and in, in, in very like delicate portions of my body. The, the postules are growing deeper and, and wider and, and grosser just reading this story. On its broad tree-lined avenues, redolent of linden blossom, where golden light bays the gray, green ochre and light blue buildings, a semblance of everyday life has returned. Insouciance is one expression of Odessan pride. Insouciance is also one expression of uh, gay bathhouse pride. Oh, man. Odessa is the crux of the war. That is true, right? It holds the key to the Black Sea. But also because in it, the battle between Russian and Ukrainian identity, an imperial past and a democratic future, a closed system and one connected to the world plays out with particular intensity. All right, that's not why Odessa is important, right? It's not like, oh, Russia's closed system, Ukraine all connected to the world, therefore Russia's bad, Ukraine's good. Right? Sometimes you don't want to be connected to, say, Drag Queen, queen uh, Story Hour. This is a city of fierce independence and stubborn inclusiveness. Yeah, just like the gay bathhouse. It, it, all right, so this fierce independence and stubborn inclusiveness, that symbolizes all Mr. Putin wants to annihilate in Ukraine. I don't think uh, Putin really gives a, a damn about these particular values. He just wants to protect his people and protect his country in the most effective way possible. Odessans look in the mirror. They see a face like theirs, speaking the same Russian language, sharing much of the same history, yet the face now belongs to a stranger intent on killing them. They live in a state of shock. Are you feeling the monkeypox breaking out on you as as you listen to this story? Because I know by by the time I'm done, I'm just going to be bathed in monkeypox sores. Oh, uh, breaking news flash! So you thought that uh, monkeypox was just just caused by 
by uh, skin contact. But you'll be shocked that that's not actually not actually true. Did you know that the uh, the experts got monkeypox wrong? Did you know that it is a gay venereal disease spread sexually? <laughs> Knock me over with a feather. Sex between men, not skin contact, is fueling monkeypox. The claim that skin-to-skin contact during sex between men, not intercourse itself, drives most monkeypox transmission is backward. All right? So it's sex between men itself, both anal as well as oral, is the main driver of global monkeypox transmission. It's a gay STD. It's sexual transmission, particularly through seminal fluids, that is causing the monkeypox outbreak. This is an infection transmitted sexually the vast majority of the time. Okay. Well, do you need more more from this uh, New York Times article on Odessa? About this brave, plucky country filled with insouciance, a bawdy world of smugglers, gangsters, shakedown artists, and fast talkers. It's got a freewheeling Odessan passion, guys. Now, Putin wrote that Russia and Ukraine formed the same historical and spiritual space. There's truth to that, that Russia was robbed by Ukrainian independence. Sure. I mean, if you're... If your kid grows up and gets married and moves away, I mean, in a sense that you're robbed of the same degree of connection that you had before. Mr. Putin has reminded humankind, humankind, how monkeypox is that? That the idiom fascism knows best is untruth, so grotesque it begets unreason. My God, don't they have editors at the New York Times? Mr. Putin has reminded humankind that the idiom fascism knows best is untruth, so grotesque, it begets unreason. Uh, Putin's not a fascist. Fascism is a revolt against the left. It is of the nature of crazed acts to provoke the antithesis of their desired effect. My God. Oh, my, my monkeypox is getting so bad right now. Just looking through this monkeypox article here by Roger Cohen in the New York Times. Oi. Surely, surely there is something happier that we can talk about. Let's, uh, let's talk about the denial of death. Too dang smart for everyone. I'm too smart. I am just always going to be able to see through the illusory nature of these cultural ideals. And so what naturally goes along with that is that nothing will ever feel meaningful to me. It is effectively impossible for me to ever be a happy person. Becker would have seen this coming. Uh, He talks at one point about how in Western modernity, we think of it as such a valuable skill to have a really good BS detector. My words, not his. The point he's making, though, is that with so much information out there to sort through, we all want the ability to separate the legitimate ideas from things that are merely illusions or just downright false. The problem is, if you start to get too good of a BS detector, and now you start to see the illusions and the narratives that underlie every single one of these cultural hero journeys that somebody might engage in, at that point, you can start to ask the question, how do you not just see through the story that you're telling yourself every day and end up right back where you started in a place of terror or neuroticism? Becker would no doubt look at 17-year-old Uncle Steve, who's convinced that he's never going to be a happy person, and he'd say, okay, 
listen for a second. You do currently interface with the world around you based on a set of constructed illusions. And you do currently have... Right, that's what we do, all right? I'm here giving you my illusions and bouncing my illusions off your illusions. I mean, this is brilliant. I mean, this is a lecture on Ernest Becker from the Philosophize This podcast, all right? Most conversations are clashing sets of illusions. Meaningful activities that you engage in every day that you for some reason decided it's okay for you to live by, at least for now. Look, you are not accessing the unbridled complexity of the universe. You're a dancing monkey just like the rest of us. And maybe take some of that overflowing intelligence that you have, all that neurotic energy, and apply it to something that's actually going to be productive for you. Get better at the skill of compartmentalizing the illusions that give you the life you want to have. Get better at seeing these illusions as tools, and then use those tools to build a shelter for yourself that's going to be sturdy. Something this is great. This is, this is important. Like, use your illusions as tools. And, and believe in, in their ultimate truth, right? I believe in the ultimate truth of, of my illusions, but I simultaneously recognize that they're based on subjective leaps of faith. So you can, you can reap the benefits of building up these the sturdy tools, these sturdy huts of, of protection against the, the feeling of insignificance. At the same time, you can recognize the tremendous subjectivity that goes into constructing your your worldview, your your hero system. So you can both benefit from a hero system and maintain an ability to kind of step outside of it so you don't get uh, too carried away. Because anytime you join any group, it has some of the characteristics of a cult. But if you can just kind of step outside your group and think briefly about how does what we're saying and doing, how, how would that be perceived by outsiders, all right? I think this is a healthy way to live. Something that's going to last over the years. Something that's going to survive a couple storms along the way. See, when your culture or the place you arbitrarily fell into your cultural roles is all that you've ever known. When you're so far down the rabbit hole of mistaking your own personal set of illusions, your heroic project for the reality of the universe. Becker thinks it becomes so easy to miss out on just how similar the function of religion and the function of culture really are. And it's right in front of your eyes. He says that normality is the refusal of reality. Right. So people on the left and people center left and even in the center think that people on the right who hold to a traditional conception of the world, that we're just living out an illusion. And so secular people think that, you know, religious people believe in illusions, but we all believe in illusions. The left-wing worldview, the center-left worldview, the liberal worldview the secular humanist worldview are also built on illusions. We can't live without our illusions. Nobody can live without a hero system. Left-wing thought, liberal thought, secular thought are also expressions of a hero system. It's not like they are more objective than the religious. They just have different hero systems. Meaning to Becker that all of culture is supernatural. Think about it. Culture is a human construction, obviously. And it's made up of various illusions that make people feel better. And Anonymous Professor has stopped by. Welcome back. Great to see you, sir. Ernest Becker's ideas have been tested in social psychological research and have mostly been supported. Yes. And so when I talk about ideas on here, I'm not just like pulling them from the New York Times. All right. I read the books and then I try to get a handle on what is the 
academic literature with regard to this particular topic. It doesn't mean that I, I bow down to the academy and that I automatically accept that, uh, you know, the latest and greatest academic research is true. But I try to be aware of what the academic literature has to say in addition to what I'm reading in the New York Times, in addition to what I'm reading in books, in addition to what I observe with my own lying eyes and learn from experiences with other people. So, I, I mean, I'm just going back to my conversations with Claire Core. All she wants to do is talk about theology these days, it, it seems like, and, and great, but she doesn't want to actually read any books on theology. She makes all sorts of pronouncements showing she has absolutely no awareness of what academic literature has to say on the topic she is espousing. And just because you're aware of what the academic literature is doesn't mean that you bow down to it or that you accept it. But you're not a serious thinker if you're not aware of what's going on in the academy with regard to whatever particular ideas are important to you. Better about their impending death and cosmic insignificance, not unlike religion. People say stuff in Western modernity all the time, like, look at these religious people. What, they get a group on for a lobotomy together? Like, these people truly believe they're going to be drinking margaritas up in the clouds with Winston Churchill one day. And all of this is so obviously just because of the fact they're terrified that they're going to have to die soon. But Becker would say, look at culture for a second. Look at what you blindly immersed yourself into. Religion certainly gives people a stable identity to hold on to. So does culture. Religion gives people a purpose and a moralistic path towards getting to that purpose. So does culture. Right. So religion from a purely secular perspective, is just one expression of culture. But it's not inherently more anti-rational or subjective or, or primitive than other expressions of, of culture, such as the, the, the reigning left-wing uh, secular ideology that, that dominates the academy and dominates our left-wing institutions. So Becker thought that the desire to be a hero is present in all humans. He wrote that such a desire is too all-absorbing and relentless to be an aberration. It expresses the heart of the creature, the desire to stand out, to be the one in creation. However, the attempt to achieve the status of a hero, Becker warned, is destined for failure. Human beings are creatures whose cosmic significance does not rise above that of any other creature, and thus in Becker's opinion is virtually non-existent. Yet human beings cannot live with the awareness that the attempt to achieve heroism is destined for failure, and that therefore they are ultimately striving after an illusion. Right. People can't live with a, without the belief, effectively, that there is a God. Right. People believe that their lives have significance, that their country, their, their nation, or whatever the ideas have significance, and these things only have significance if there's some sort of transcendent trajectory. Right. Everybody, the way they live, they effectively believe that there are such things as objective right and wrong. Right? People, the most you know, atheist, secular people, are not free from moral outrage. Like moral outrage is just built into who we are. Whoops. Let's play a little more here. Becker was not being condescending when he spoke of the inescapable need to strive after what is ultimately an illusion. For he realized that human beings, in being the only animal aware of the inevitability of death, are in a terrible existential predicament. And it's not death itself primarily that we fear. We fear that with death, our life will be completely insignificant. And so that's why some people strive for greatness in live streaming. Other people strive for greatness in painting or in literature. But we all... 
you know, need to feel significant. Only a few individuals, all right, achieve greatness. So generally speaking, we get our feeling of significance from buying into a social system, uh, a socially created meaning system, a hero system, whereby we are the good guys if we get married, have kids, support our family, uh, pay taxes, uh, go to church, uh, you know, promote certain political or cultural ideas. You know, we we need a hero system to get out of the bed and be effective in life. He therefore concerned himself with critically analyzing the different ways individuals strive to attain heroism. The question of human life is, on what level of illusion does one live? This question poses an absolutely new question for the science of mental health, namely, what is the best illusion under which to live? Or, what is the most legitimate foolishness? I think the whole question would be answered in terms of how much freedom, dignity, and hope a given illusion provides. Now, Ernest Becker was an anthropologist. He wasn't a psychologist. And there's a whole academic field that uh, tests out many of his ideas. It's called uh, terror management theory. Historically, religion has been the most common and effective means for convincing humans that their lives are significant. As Becker explained, most religions throughout history, and especially the Judeo-Christian teachings, have convinced believers that one's very creatureliness has some meaning to a creator, that despite one's true insignificance, weakness, death, one's existence has meaning in some ultimate sense, because it exists within an eternal and infinite scheme of things, brought about and maintained to some kind of design by some creative force. Yet Becker thought that individuals in the modern era are in a very difficult position. On the one hand, we all have the drive for heroism, but on the other hand, religious dogma has become increasingly difficult for many to accept. Becker proposed that individuals today increasingly attempt to achieve heroism by identifying with what is deemed important by one's culture. Rare individuals, be they athletes, musicians, or celebrities, have no difficulty satiating their drive to heroism. By becoming objects of worship and adoration among the masses, they attain the status of a cultural hero and thereby can easily delude themselves into believing that they are the one in creation, as Becker put it. However, for the majority of individuals becoming an object of worship is not a possibility. Instead, most attain the feeling that they are important and significant by becoming a cog in a heroic machine, be it one society, nation, or corporation. Often this drive to heroism for the common man has led to the emergence of mass movements, where individuals shape their entire existence around a cause. So much of what we're doing here is raging against, you know, underlying anxiety about insignificance. And so to, to hold that at bay, we instead, you know, support certain traditional perspectives on life. And, you know, we gather here together, we socially construct meaning, and uh, we give each other strength. As they deem to be of the utmost importance. According to Becker, this is all driven by the need to identify and contribute to something outside of oneself, which will live on even after one dies. Man earns his feeling of worth by following in the lines of authority and power internalized in his particular family, social group, and nation. Each human slave nods to the next. Each earns his feeling of worth by doing the unquestioned good. Becker thought the vast majority of individuals attain the feeling that they are important and unique by participating in the social hero system into which they were born. Yet in doing so, 
Becker proposed that individuals neglect their uniqueness as individuals and discard whatever talents and potentials might have existed in their childhood and adolescence. Take the average man who has to stage in his own way the life drama of his own worth and significance. As a youth, he, like everyone else, feels that deep down he has a special talent, an indefinable but real something to contribute to the richness and success of life in the universe. But, like almost everyone else, he doesn't seem to hit on the unfolding of this special something. His life takes on the character of a series of accidents and encounters that carry him along into new experiences and responsibilities. Career, marriage, family, approaching old age, all these happen to him. He doesn't command them. Instead of his staging the drama of his own significance, he himself is staged, programmed by the standard scenario laid down by his society. And if you don't uh, follow this scenario, all right, you, you end up as a 56-year-old bachelor live streamer. Yeah, I'm here still trying to stage my own life drama. All right, I, I'm still here, you know, raging against the dying of the light. So I get to feel like I, I'm creating my own life because I have largely skipped out on adult responsibilities like having a real career, marriage, family, uh, those sorts of things. While the vast majority of individuals conform to their social hero system, Becker understood that a small minority of individuals shun the social hero system into which they were born and attempt to achieve heroism through a sheer act of personal willpower. Becker described this type of individual as one who tries to be a god unto himself, the master of his fate, a self-created man. He will not be merely the pawn of others, of society. He will not be a passive sufferer and secret dreamer, nursing his own inner flame in oblivion. Right, this is how I've uh, tried to live. <laughs> Such a person attempts to achieve heroism by finding their authentic talent and developing this talent to the best of their ability. This talent is then used as the sole measure of one's worth. Becker saw this type of pursuit of heroism. So I, I remember at one point I thought I was going to be a great uh, marathon runner. And, and then I developed knee problems at age 14. I read, oh, okay, that's not going to happen. So until then, I was using my abilities with running extremely long distances as the, pretty much the sole measure of my worth. Then in eighth grade, I said, okay, I'm going to devote myself to journalism. And then about age 21, I became dissatisfied with that. So I said, okay, I'm going to devote myself to becoming an academic. I'll become an economist. Then I got sick and I wasn't able to devote myself to that. So all these sole measures of my worth would, would crash and fall apart. So then I rebuilt my life where the, you know, the primary measure of my worth would be my commitment to Judaism. But then I, I took a, a few wrong turns and, uh, and then it became the, the primary measure of my worth was my was my blogging, was, was the size of my internet audience, my, my reach, my influence, my online persona. And uh, then eventually by 2007, I could see I could no longer you know, make a living uh, pursuing this personal heroism. So, oh, okay, I'll become an Alexander Technique teacher. And then a few years later, I realized, oh, I can't really make a living doing that. Heroism as, not surprisingly, doomed to failure. If I were asked for the single most striking insight into human nature and the human condition, it would be this, that no person is strong enough to support the meaning of his life unaided by something outside him. Right, so I had to add uh, Judaism, I had to add uh, participation in the, like, the Los Angeles Press Club uh, and the Los Angeles community of writers. Then I had to add the Alexander Technique uh, teaching community 
to kind of support the meaning of my life. I joined a, a yoga club and what else? Have, oh, and then 12-step communities, right? The, those have been the, the most positive, the most influential uh, communities that I've joined in the last uh, 12 years. Given that Becker believed that for most religious heroism is no longer a possibility, cultural heroism transforms individuals into blind conformists, and personal heroism is doomed to failure, the question arises, what is one to do? For the vast majority, Becker believed that striving for heroism by following the standard scenario laid down by society was the highest heroism one could hope to attain. But he also thought that a rare minority of individuals had the strength to stand up to the truth of man's condition without requiring the protective cover of cultural heroism. Connects with the invisible. Whoops. Becker thought these rare individuals are capable. Okay, so some uh, rare individuals. Capable of attaining this. what he called genuine heroism. These individuals do not require illusions to live, but instead have the courage and strength to face up to the impossible situation man is in. That's us. Is that not us? I mean, we've got the best people here, right? This is a, a room filled with, with genuine heroes. You know who the real heroes are? It's the people who are watching this show right now. People who don't require illusions to live. I think that taking life seriously means something such as this. That whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the grotesque, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. Okay, let's uh, get a little bit more from Philosophize This. Religion gives people an oversimplified version of reality so that it's easy for them to understand. So does culture. Religion gives people hope of an afterlife. So does culture. You know, the secular version of an afterlife is just called a legacy. And whether you're a religious zealot or just a cultural hero carrying out a set of projects you've come up with, you are more or less scratching the same itch at the root of human existence. He says, quote, it doesn't matter whether the cultural hero system is frankly magical, religious and primitive, or secular, scientific and civilized. It is still a mythical hero system in which people serve in order to get a feeling of primary value, of cosmic specialness, of ultimate usefulness to creation, of unshakable meaning. When Norman O. Brown said that Western society since Newton, no matter how scientific or secular it claims to be, is still as religious as any other, this is what he meant. Civilized society is a hopeful belief and protest that science, money, and goods make men count for more than any other animal. In this sense, everything that man does is religious and heroic, and yet in danger of being fictitious and fallible, end quote. So no matter how secular or scientific something may seem to be, ultimately, it's just a part of our religion of Western modernity. As he says, it doesn't matter if it's a totem pole, a temple, a skyscraper, or a family that spans three generations. All of these are monuments to the same cultural, heroic, religious process that people are engaged in. Okay, speaking of heroes, here's an article about... Uh, the former Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Okay. So, New York Times, guys, New York Times. Secret powers of an Australian Prime Minister now revealed. Scott Morrison was busy during the pandemic. In addition to being Prime Minister, he covertly put himself in charge of five ministries. Okay, what do critics say about this? Option number one. Critics say he damaged democracy. You are right. He damaged democracy by taking on extra ministries. Wow. I mean, that really crushes democracy, doesn't it? 
Sydney, Australia. Damien Cave writes here in the New York Times. Most Australians are proud of their Westminster model of parliamentary democracy. Really? Listen, mate. Most Australians don't give a stuff about politics. All right, this is the New York Times proclaiming most Australians are proud of the Westminster model of parliamentary democracy. I think about 5% of Australians and 5% of Americans can even articulate a, a coherent political philosophy. So this is just bollocks. Most Australians are proud. I mean, this article's so gay, I'm afraid it's just going to make my monkeypox worse. Proud of the Westminster model of parliamentary democracy, meaning it copied from the English, in which ministers are empowered to decide how wide swaths of the government operate. Oh, yes, ministers. Ministers, they just have so much power. They just get to decide how, how wide swaths of the government work. Ministers, right? The Minister for the Environment, Minister for Education, uh, the Defense Minister, the, the Treasury Minister just have just so much power. Has this guy ever watched Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister uh, to, to realize how little power and influence ministers generally wield? What's his problem? Education. Well, it's a bit late to do anything about that. <laughs> so these elite civil servants in this BBC series, Yes uh, Minister and Yes Prime Minister, they have elite Oxford educations, but the uh, poor lowly Prime Minister, he only managed to go to the London School of Economics. <laughs> No, no, the education system. I see. Well, it's a bit late to do anything about that either. <laughs> well, he thinks he's going to lose in the next election. Well, worse things could befall the nation. <laughs> he can't ignore facts. If he can't ignore facts, he's got no business being a politician. <laughs> anyway, Bernard, he's got nothing to worry about. The education system does all that most parents requires of it. Keeps the children out of mischief while they're at work. Uh, yes, but that paper the party chairman showed the prime minister suggests the whole of the comprehensive system is breaking down, doesn't it? I never thought to hear such language from a loyal member of the civil service. <laughs> Have you been got at by the enemy? You mean the Russians? The Russians. No, Bernard, I don't. I mean the Prime Minister's political adviser, that Wainwright female. The comprehensive education was an experiment. Surely it ought to be validated. Yes, of course, but not invalidated. But if it was introduced to improve educational standards... What ever gave you that idea? <laughs> you mean it was to get rid of class distinction? Precisely. So that all children... Children? Who mentioned children? Well, I just the Department of Education never mentions children. <laughs> no, 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 Bernard. It was to get rid of class distinction in the teaching profession. Right, I mean, this is so applicable today. So this show, a particular episode, I think is from 1986. But uh, the Department of Education and teachers unions, right, they're, they're definitely not about the welfare of children. <laughs> Improve the living standards of teachers, not the educational standards of children. Bring the NUT teachers in the primary and the secondary moderns up to the salary level of their rivals in the National Association of Schoolmasters and the grammar schools. Uh, but the department... Bernard, when there is a Labour government, the Education Department says that comprehensives abolish the class system. And when there's a Tory government, they say that it's the cheapest way of providing mass education. To Labour, we explain that selective education is divisive, and to the Tories, we explain that it is expensive. <laughs> that way, we have a happy relationship with the NUT and we educate our Meaning own children privately. <laughs> <laughs> but if the government wants change... The teaching unions don't. 
But isn't it our job to persuade the unions to accept government policy? No, Bernard. It is our job to get the government to accept union policy. And since government change policy all the time and unions never change their policy at all, <laughs> in practice, common sense requires that it is the government who must be brought in line with the unions. Right? I mean, this is, this is how the real world works. It's not like uh, unions, you know, just out for the welfare of, of the children. Okay. Let's get a little That's bit a more. Job. Be that as it may. Look what's happened to education in this country. This is a question from a this religious studies minister. paper. Which do you prefer, atom bombs or charity? <laughs> Maths is becoming politicised. If it costs £5 billion a year to maintain Britain's nuclear defences and £75 a year to feed a starving African child, how many African children could be saved from starvation if the Ministry of Defence abandoned nuclear weapons? <laughs> OK, let's read more from this ridiculous New York Times article. <clears throat> it says Australians prefer a collaborative politics. Really? I mean, have you ever listened to you know the the Australian Parliament? Uh, it, it's not exactly you know filled with uh, collaborative moments. I mean, come on, man. Of course, it was a pretty amazing day in the Parliament. Two years of anger boiled over with the opposition leader and the Prime Minister exchanging insults and invective. During a rare move to sack the Speaker, as Chris explained, Tony Abbott said that Julia Gillard's government should have died of shame, a nasty echo of the slight directed at her father. The Prime Minister unleashed on Mr Abbott's character, calling him a misogynist. Oh, man, I'm concerned. This just doesn't sound very... Uh... Collaborative. Of course, it was a pretty. Uh, where's the collaboration here? I mean, surely the the New York Times isn't steering me wrong here. Okay, let's go. Of course, get it was a pretty a amazing day. Here. But I have had to affirm to the House that I deny allegations. Peter Slipper has said literally publicly since the sexual harassment case against him was launched. If we could just have a bit of decorum tonight. It's been six months since Peter Slipper last graced the Speaker's chair. He still has the title and the salary, but has stood down from chamber duties while sexual harassment claims against him are tested in the federal court. He might be out of sight in Parliament, but he isn't out of mind. This Speaker is no longer a fit and proper person. His occupancy of the Speaker's role is no longer tenable. The damage that's been done to this parliament has damaged us all. Court disclosures of more base text messages sent by Peter Slipper are the latest bludgeon in this parliament. And I only allude to the gross references to female genitalia which are contained in the uncontradicted, undenied evidence before the court about the conduct of this speaker. This was the opportunity the coalition had been seeking since Peter Slipper deserted its ranks for the trappings of office in November. And I move that as provided for by section 35 of the constitution, the speaker be removed from office immediately. 
In 112 years of federal parliament, no speaker has ever been voted from office and it's a decade since an opposition has tried. The arguments were that the vile content of some of the messages brings the highest parliamentary office into disrepute and one which refers to a female coalition frontbencher as an ignorant botch reveals bias. In undenied, uncontradicted evidence before a court uh, against a member of this House by someone who is charged to act without fear or favour. But Peter Slipper is a surrogate in this fight. The Coalition's war is with Julia Gillard. Well, I say to this Prime Minister, just as the Speaker has failed the character test, you, Prime Minister, are about to fail the judgment test. And every day that you, Prime Minister, run a protection racket for the current Speaker, just as you ran for months and years a protection racket for the member of Do for Dobell, you indicate your unfitness for high office as well. The Prime Minister stepped up to the fight and her attack was direct and personal. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Not now, not ever. The Leader of the Opposition says that people who hold sexist views and who are misogynists... Wow, it just doesn't sound terribly uh, collaborative there. Right, but let's let's get back to the New York Times here. Apparently, Australians prefer a collaborative politics. They abhor the centralised pomp and power of the American presidency. Did you... I don't know about you. Whenever I think of, of Joe Biden, I just think about pomp and power. Right. I mean, is there anyone more filled with pomp and power than good old Joe Biden? Which is why revelations this week about the country's Trump-friendly former prime minister have unleashed a volcano of criticism. Turns out the blustery leader that Australia chose to evict from office in May, Scott Morrison, had elevated himself to new heights. After COVID arrived in March of 2020, he wasn't just the prime minister. He swore himself in as a second health minister, finance minister, resource minister and home affairs minister, along with appointing himself co-treasurer. And he kept his new rules a secret from the public and most of his colleagues in the parliament. It undermines our democracy, says the current Australian Prime Minister. How does this undermine democracy? Democracy is majority rule. And that uh, Scott Morrison took on you know, co-ministerial roles has absolutely you know, nothing to do with undermining or strengthening democracy. Right? Why did this happen? Because we had a COVID emergency. And when you have an emergency, you give essentially health ministries extraordinary powers to essentially direct citizens to do you know absolutely anything to control the spread of COVID-19. So uh, counties in California have a health officer who can essentially do anything to try to control the, the spread of a, a disease. So they have almost unlimited power. And so under the health emergency with regard to COVID, the laws of public health essentially made the health minister in Australia more powerful than the prime minister and so he didn't like that and so he appointed himself health minister then finance minister to make sure that he could have a say over emergency spending so what's so horrible about that uh, morrison said his power play had been the right decision for very unconventional times it may very well have been the right decision i don't have a strong opinion whether it was right or wrong but I just think it's ludicrous to say that it was, you know, undermining democracy. I mean, come on, man. 
I, I know we have to manufacture meaning. I know we have to, you know, ride the white horse in our own stories that, you know, we're triumphantly defending democracy or whatever illusion that we're telling ourselves to try to feel important. But I mean, come on, mate. Now, you may come away from this feeling like Becker's being a little bit unnecessarily hostile towards this whole process that's going on with culture. I mean, seriously, what if I like totem poles? What if I like skyscrapers? In other words, what is the problem, really, with people finding a purpose for their life by immersing themselves in a culture and then providing a service that makes society better for the people around them? Don't we want more of that to happen instead of people just tranquilizing themselves with the trivial or drowning themselves in drugs and entertainment? Becker would no doubt say yes, and he's not coming at anyone with any kind of hostility here. Remember, Becker is an anthropologist and ultimately a scientist. It may feel a little bit abrasive when somebody not only tells you what you're doing, but then tells you why you're doing it, almost like they're your therapist. But understand, the intent of the therapist is never to make you feel bad or to make you feel dumb. The hope is that by understanding what drives you at a fundamental level, you can at least be a little more aware of what's going on and a little more capable of being with whatever it is that you're going through. You know, you can go your entire life hating things about yourself and how you interface with people in the world around you. You can spend your entire life thinking that you're broken, that there's this part of yourself that needs to be fixed. And until it's gone, you're never going to be able to fully live. But just like this latent fear of death, this terror and pain that resides just under the surface, the way that I read Becker is that it seems like what he's trying to do is to show us what is going on. And that even if we have to live with this trauma, this fear of death for the rest of our lives, at least by showing us it, we can maybe learn to just be alongside it. Yeah, I mean, I find clarity is, is the most calming thing of all. I just love getting clarity on things. Well, this invisible that we're connecting with through transcendence, no doubt is referring to what people sometimes call God. It's in reference to the idea that we often find ourselves, like the protagonist of this series, caught up in these earthly affairs where we desperately seek the meaning to things. The problem, Becker thinks, is that we have this expectation as we go along in that quest that there can be any sort of coherent, obvious translation of that ultimate significance to us as individuals. But why do we just assume that that's the case? See, the fact is to Becker, the universe does have some sort of ultimate significance. You'll just never know what it is. And no matter how small, your actions do play a significant part in whatever sort of operation is playing out on a cosmic level. You're just never going to know what that significance is. You can't know. That, that, that really sums up my approach. The outside world is, is so complicated. I mean, I'll never get an adequate grasp on it. I, I can just, you know, just kind of see the shadows on, on the wall of the cave. So when, when COVID came, I was a terrible pundit. I didn't have any particular strong opinion. I, I could I could see the conventional wisdom case that this is a once-in-a-century pandemic. Uh, I read a book about the Spanish flu in 1918, how it killed maybe 40 million people around the world. I thought, okay, this is, this is serious. This is extraordinary. And I just kind of waffled in the middle, listening to the, the distant voices and listening to the conventional voices. And uh, waffling along, I guess that's, that's my show. That ultimate significance doesn't speak to you. It doesn't come to you in your dreams. You don't read it by laying out some tarot cards and lighting some aromatherapy candles in your dining room. It is effectively invisible to you, is what he means. But, important to ask, 
does that necessarily mean that you can't connect with the invisible? Part of what he's saying is that it may be the case that by connecting with the invisible, it opens up a mode of existence that is otherwise unavailable to the vast majority of human beings on this planet. A mode of existence where you don't really see yourself as this this all-important monkey that's going to live forever because you figured out the ultimate truth to the universe, but instead just one monkey of 8 billion monkeys that are all in this together. What Becker's saying is that ironically, by abandoning the delusional pursuit towards gaining immortality through our personal set of illusions, we can actually find a way to feel closer to one another, all equally meaningless, yet together within that dilemma, that world of dehumanization and silencing. Right. We, we think much more effectively when we think together, right? That, that's what we do on this show. I share ideas, you share ideas, I bounce uh, perspectives off you, you dispel my illusions, I challenge your illusions, all right? We think much more effectively when we think socially because we're not very good. We're not created by, by evolution to see the flaws in our own thinking, all right? Because that wouldn't be evolutionarily adaptive, all right? It, it, it gives you an advantage to go through life with an inordinate amount of confidence. But when I spell out what I'm thinking, all right, when I expose it to the cold, harsh light of day and you punch holes in what I'm thinking, then, then I go, oh, I need to rethink this. I need to do further research here. So we think socially much more effectively than when we just think things through on our own. And the other can potentially turn into a world more interested in empathy and actually trying to view things from all sides. Becker thinks this concept of the invisible is an extremely powerful tool to have on your side as you navigate this chaotic existence. Remember, he's saying this after making the case that we are fundamentally a religious sort of creature. And he thinks this is why shifting our perspective towards the cosmic, the silent, the invisible, when we do this, this is why something like the archetype of the Christian God in particular has been so effective at dealing with this fear of insignificance and impermanence. He talks about it here, quote, Religion answers directly to the problem of transference by expanding awe and terror to the cosmos where they belong. It also takes the problem of self-justification and removes it from the objects near at hand. We no longer have to please those around us, but the very source of creation, the powers that created us, not those into whose lives we accidentally fell. Our life's... Right, so Christianity rose because it met people's needs, all right? It was more effective than the Jewish, Greco, and Roman alternatives, right? That's why Christianity became so powerful. And then Christianity has lost power in the West because it's become less effective. It's been out-competed by other things to meet people's needs for, for comfort and community. It ceases to be a reflexive dialogue with the standards of our wives, husbands, friends, and leaders, and becomes instead measured by standards of the highest heroism, ideals truly fit to lead us on and beyond ourselves. In this way, we fill ourselves with independent values. Can so this is so key, living for something beyond yourself. I mean, here's, here's something that I pick up from novels and movies and TV shows. When people get into trouble, it's almost always because they don't have some sort of transcendent purpose above meeting their own needs. I mean, this, this is the problem again and again and again in, in literature and great movies and great theater. Right? When you don't have something above and beyond yourself, and instead you're primarily devoted to meeting your own needs, you're very likely to get into trouble. You're very likely to fall into the bondage of the self. Right, let's get some wisdom here from Richard Spencer. Mainline Republicans were losing seats left and right. I would be like, oh, this is great. You know, it's a new Republican Party. And I think it is kind of a new Republican Party. 
But the sole reason why she lost Talking was about, that uh, she Lynn Cheney. Uh, refused to claim that the election was stolen did not go in get, did not go along with that and then indeed uh is the focal point of the uh j6 committee hearings and she is routinely denouncing trump not for his policies but for his election lies and so on an attempt to stay in office despite losing the election and keep in mind that liz cheney voted for with, along with trump what he supported uh, to the tune of 90 to 95% of the time. So she has effectively no policy disagreements with Trump or looked at the other way, Trump has no policy disagreements with her. Uh, it's not, I mean, if she represents the rhino uh, section of the Republican party, then Donald Trump is a rhino too, because they don't disagree on tax cuts, on whatever else Trump did during this time. I think there's a lot of kind of overdone talk about tariffs against China. But again, Liz Cheney went along with that. And uh, there's actually a very strong neocon urge to um, be very hawkish against China. So none of these things are contradictory. So it's simply a matter of a shibboleth. And, you know, a shibboleth in the Old Testament is you pronounce that word shibboleth in a certain way, that means you're part of the enemy tribe, you pronounce it in the right way, that means you're a friend. If you're part of the enemy tribe, you get slaughtered. What the hell happened here? Oh, come on, Richard. Just uh, just when it was getting good. Okay, I guess uh, Richard's insisting that I go back to honest. Can make free decisions, and most important, can lean on powers that really support us and do not oppose us. The personality can truly begin to emerge in religion because God, as an abstraction, does not oppose the individual as others do but instead provides the individual with all the powers necessary for independent self-justification. What greater security than to lean confidently on God? If God is hidden and intangible, all the better. That allows man to expand and develop himself, end quote. Ultimately, what Becker's offering here by way of hope in this otherwise grim picture that he's painting is a path that lies beyond cultural heroism, beyond self-justification. And the reason the archetype of a god has been so helpful to people throughout human history is because it can get us out of that reflexive dialogue with the culture around us and instead gives us an abstraction to relate to. But more than that, what Becker's saying is that in a way, it is only after you've abandoned this otherwise default pursuit towards finding a way to connect to some ultimate meaning within human culture, it's only then that you can actually start to live with truly independent values. It's only then that you can start to get a taste of true freedom. And this, this is going to have some similarities to the later work of Camus. We've had a couple episodes of the podcast on Camus. mostly talk Okay, let's see if I can uh, get uh, Richard back in here. In the right way, that means you're a friend. If you're part of the enemy tribe, you get slaughtered. So it is just something, it's like a code word, that if you say the election was stolen, Shut you're on up. Team Trump or Team MAGA. And if you say otherwise, we hate you. So there's no substance, is what I'm saying to this you know, new conservative Trump party. It is, the, nothing about policy has changed. This is purely about whether you want to lie to yourselves and others about the election, or whether you kind of want to play footsie with what's basically QAnon tier nonsense. And you know, this woman who won, Hageman, I believe is her name, has said mm -hmm. things like, is that her name? Yeah, that's it, Harriet yeah. Hageman. Yes, she's, first off, she, interestingly, Harriet Hageman um, attacked Donald Trump 
when it actually counted, at least early on, in 2015 and 2016, she attacked him as a racist. She wanted to get rid of him. She endorsed uh, Liz Cheney multiple times. And I think even introduced her at some point in a speech. So again, the notion that there is any substance to populism outside of election lies is ridiculous. It simply isn't. And um, so, you know, again, say what you will about Liz Cheney. Um, the, the issue that people getting excited about this should ask themselves is why was Liz Cheney totally in line with Trump on everything that mattered? You know, like, why did Liz Cheney love Trump's attacks in Iran? Why did Liz Cheney love Trump's policies? Why did Liz Cheney vote for Donald Trump twice? Um, so I, I, there's just this fantasy of like, this is a rebuke of the Iraq war is just uh, ridiculous. And, um, or, or rebuke of anything else is ridiculous. Um, Hageman, uh, you know, will say, basically she opposed Donald Trump when it counted. This is a long-term trend that I've noticed where uh, people like Michelle Malkin, Ted Cruz, J.D. Vance, et cetera, they opposed Trump before Trump was in office and thus like the possibilities were open to a lot of things. You know, it, it was kind of like, what actually is Trump going to become? We don't know. Might he actually be a nationalist figure who is going to almost be to the left of Hillary Clinton on many political issues, seemingly? And um, when that possibility was open, and then also when Trump was kind of at his most, when Trump's racism actually seemed to have consequences, like when he was saying, you know, I think Americans are going to be dreamers and, you know, the Mexicans are sending rapists for getting rid of them, et cetera. When it seemed like there was actual policy behind racism and it wasn't just this cheap racism of like, you know, there are rats running around Baltimore. What a gross place, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, that exactly then is when J.D. Vance and, you know, Harriet Hageman opposed him vehemently. Okay, let's get a little bit more here on this. Talking about the myth of Sisyphus or his relationship to Sartre. But one thing we didn't talk about is his concept of revolt. Camus was an absurdist. So he doesn't believe that you can sit down in a library, think about stuff a lot, and then arrive at any sort of ultimate enduring meaning that's going to inform your life no matter what comes your way. No, this universe is fundamentally an absurd universe to Camus. To try to find meaning is like trying to find Easter eggs on Christmas. And what I mean by that is it's like trying to find some ritualistic human-created delusion within yet another ritualistic human-created delusion and then being disappointed when you don't find it. See, if you were the protagonist of this series, and you've more or less spent your life sifting through human culture, looking for the meaning of life, looking for some greater purpose of the universe that's going to get you springing out of bed into your house slippers every morning, only to get to what seems like the end of the road, disappointed that there doesn't seem to be one... Camus would probably say, uh, congratulations, here's your certificate for graduating the first grade of human existence, sort of ultimate system of meaning. He says, quote, one of the only coherent philosophical positions is thus revolt. It is a constant confrontation between man and his own obscurity. It is an insistence upon an impossible transparency. It challenges the world anew every second. It is not aspiration, for it is devoid of hope. That revolt is the certainty of a crushing fate without the resignation that ought to accompany it, end quote. Now, one thing Camus makes very clear is that it is within this state of revolt that you can find a type of freedom in your existence that's just not available to the average person immersed in the traditional search for meaning that most of us find ourselves. Meaning may be the very thing that's preventing you from living fully. That it's not until you abandon all hope of the delusion of human meaning that you can ever start seeing the world clearly without that constant prejudice of always looking for the meaning of everything. 
always needing some project that you're working on, ruminating on the question, why does this or that thing matter so much? But as we talked about in the Kierkegaard episode of this series, the lily of the field and the bird of the air live in a sort of eternal present where questions concerning why they do what they do, why does the lily bloom, these questions don't even really make sense from that perspective. Well, similar to the lily and the bird, it's only the person that learns to see the world in a why-less sort of way that is ever able to access an extremely important aspect of life that lies outside the realm of human concerns and projects. Now, I can obviously go much more into Camus if that... Okay, that's uh, from the terrific podcast, Philosophize This. He had a couple of episodes on Ernest Becker. On those cheery notes, I will say bye-bye and good shabbos.